Hello, Bettys. Welcome to the show. Before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to let you know that we have such an epic list of guests coming up in March. We are talking about menopause. We're talking about autoimmunity. We're talking about muscle building. We're talking about recovery practices. And I don't want you to miss any of it. Even if you are listening to the podcast, you may not necessarily be subscribed. So you're going to have to manually go into your podcast app and press play. I would love for you to hit that subscribe button so that you are getting the podcast as they are released. It's going to make me oh so happy to know that you are a subscriber of the pod. You are officially a Betty in the Bettyverse. And of course, you are never going to miss an episode and be the first to know when it drops. Thank you so much. There's a reason why, you know, the male birth control pill, like I'm using air quotes if you can't, if you're listening to this on audio, you know, there's like this joke in these like, uh, you know, contraception circles that, you know, the male pill is like five years away from being on the market. And it's been that way for the past 40 years. Like men would never, never do that to themselves. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hello, friends, and welcome back to another episode of Better with Dr. Stephanie. It's me, yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. Today, I had an enlivening conversation with my friend and colleague, Dr. Sean Tassone. Sean is a board-certified OBGYN, Obstetrics and Gynecology, and by the American Board of Integrative Medicine. He holds a medical degree in addition to a PhD in mind-body medicine. Dr. Tassone is a practicing OBGYN, a hormone specialist. He's an author, a speaker, highly rated patient advocate, and he has been in practice for over 20 years. He's seen over 40,000 women. And one of his modus operandi and why I love him so much is really to remove a lot of the myths surrounding women's health. And if there was a theme to our conversation today, it was how we have failed women as it pertains to uh, women's health. And just before I get into some of the juicy details of that, I just wanted to read a review that I received from Australia, from Gigi Surf. I am so grateful for Dr. Stephanie and her guests. The Better Show by Dr. Stephanie Stima is hands down my favorite of all the shows that I subscribe to. And when a new episode is released, I can't wait to go on my morning walk and listen to it at least once. And some of the shows have so much in them that I need to listen to them more than once and make notes. The content is gold and there's not a single episode that hasn't challenged me. I'm so encouraged on my journey of becoming better. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. And thank you, Gigi, for taking the time to to write that. I monitor all of my comments from all over the world. We actually do really well in Australia uh, and we do well in other countries like Mexico, Europe, the United States, and Canada. So I read all of them. So if you feel uh, any, like Gigi did, I would encourage you to go rate the show, uh, leave us a five-star review, leave us a review. And of course, uh, I would love to read it out here um, on the show. So thank you, Gigi, for that. And I am so thrilled that you are enjoying the content that I am putting out. 
And if you are interested in learning a little bit more about my work, you can go to, and we talked a little bit about this in the podcast around being in a ketogenic state and why it's different for women. Uh, you can go to www.estimadiet.com and there's an 18-minute masterclass. So I condense all the good juicy bits for you in there and you can learn about how to apply the ketogenic diet for women for some of the things that we are going to talk about today with Sean, with Dr. Jasone. So we talked about three main areas and we did a really deep dive in each of those. So we talked about low testosterone, the most common hormonal issue in Dr. Tassone's opinion that is underdiagnosed. And we talked about what are some of the symptoms of low testosterone and what are some of the physiological changes that happen, some of the biomarkers that changed. We talked about the difference between free testosterone and total testosterone and what the normal lab ranges are for each. We talked about Um, changes in libido, changes in unrelenting fatigue, depression, anxiety. Uh, I chimed in on the libido part, of course I did. And uh, we talked about osteoporosis and muscle wasting. Again, this is a huge, intense focus and area of interest of mine. So we talked about that and weight gain. And really wanted to dive into what are some of the causes of androgen deficiency? Why would a woman get low testosterone? So we had a discussion around uh, Sean's opinion, Dr. Tassone's opinion. I call him Sean. He's one of my friends, so you'll hear me call him Sean all the way through. Also has a wicked sense of humor. You're going to really enjoy um, some of his quirky, uh, his little quips. They're really great. Um, So his opinion on androgen deficiencies and actually why Androgen deficiency in women is not, it's, it's a tricky diagnosis because it looks like hypothyroidism. It can, pers- it can present as iron deficiency anemia, autoimmunity, depression. So you really have to be careful and you really have to be working with someone who can read labs to be able to um, diagnose you appropriately. So that was area number one. Area number two, where we geeked out on was endometriosis. Again, another really common area where I think in women's healthcare in general, we fail our women over and over again. So a definition of what endo actually is. And we talked about some of the changes in the immune system. I uh, said in the podcast, I think that endometriosis should be classified as an autoimmune disease because we see measurably lower natural killer cells uh, in their peritoneal fluid. We see reduced phagocytosis by macrophages. We see autoantibodies, which are the um, when your body views its own your own structures and tissues and cells as foreign and starts attacking itself. So we talked a little bit about some of the changes in the immune system of a woman with endometriosis. We talked about the microbiome and its interplay. Um, around the idea of intestinal hyperpermeability, small intestinal, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, say that five times fast, or SIBO, um, if you're a cool cat and you like the um, acronym. And the role of endotoxins like lipopolysaccharides. So we talked about LPS um, found in the pelvic microbiome. We see this in the menstrual blood of women with endometriosis and why it's so dang hard for a woman who is suspecting that she she's going over and over to her primary healthcare practitioner complaining of menstrual pain and they're dismissed or they're given you know a birth control pill or or what have you so we talked about endo we talked about how i approach care with endometriosis so uh, as you may if you've been following my work for a while you may know that i am a really big fan of fasting for endo so we talked about the different categories of fasting that i like to employ with my women with endometriosis and being in a ketotic state so in a ketogenic 
uh, state for women in order to help heal, bring down the inflammation and bring down that global chronic low-grade inflammation in these ladies. And then he talked about some of his favorite supplements, um, which you'll which you'll discover. And the last area that we geeked out on was something called Esure. And total honesty and transparency, I had no idea what this was. We were in our, uh, we were texting back and forth, sort of leading up to the conversation. And he's like, yeah, let's talk about Esure. And I was like, what's that? Looked it up and was just aghast at what it is, what it does, uh, and really the short-sightedness of, of the studies. And, and so you'll, you'll kind of hear us discuss that. So we talk about, um, and Esure is a, uh, an alternative to uh, tubal ligation. Uh, it's a form of female sterilization. So if a woman doesn't want uh, children anymore, she um, uh, may have opted for something like this. So we talk about what it is, the mechanism of action, and uh, now Sean's uh, practice is pro- a lot, a big part of his practice in terms of in terms of the surgical component is removing these devices from women. So overall, a very robust discussion on female health and wellness as it relates to uh, an OBGYN. And uh, like I said, Sean has a really great sense of humor. I always enjoy talking to him. And without further ado, I hope you will enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sean Tisson. I am a huge fan of the Bio Optimizers Magnesium Breakthrough. It has seven forms of magnesium, which is going to help to transform your stress and your performance and your recovery and your sleep to the next level. I'm often asked like, well, what are the types of magnesium we should be looking for? So there's magnesium chelate and citrate and bisglycinate and malate, sucrosomial, taurate and orotate. They have various effects on the body. Bisglycinate, probably the most bioavailable and most absorbable. Malate, it's found naturally in fruits, helps with migraines. Chronic pain has been shown to help improve depression. Magnesium citrate uh, helps with arterial stiffness. It helps with maintaining a healthy weight. Magnesium chelate is important for muscle building, recovery and health, the list goes on and on. You're basically getting them all in one supplement. Each supplement itself is 500 milligrams of magnesium, which I feel is such a great dosage as a great baseline for most women. I have found a beautiful medium of actually cycling my magnesium. So I actually will take one or two of these. So I'm either getting 500 milligrams or up to a gram of magnesium, depending on where I am in my cycle. So head on over to biooptimizers.com forward slash better and use code better for 10% off of any order, but make sure that the magnesium breakthrough is in your cart. Don't be fooled by the frigid temperatures. Keeping hydrated in the wintertime is super important. In colder temperatures, we sweat more due to a higher metabolic demand of trying to maintain a core body temperature. We lose more fluids and electrolytes through our urine. We lose more water through respiration and just general breathing. And our skin dries out in the wintertime as well. We are a ski family, and over this winter, we have been using Elementee's Chocolate Medley. The chocolate chai is absolutely incredible with some boiling water, a splash of milk, and my kids love the chocolate mint with some hot water. 
This is our apreski. We cozy up with Element Hot After Hours on our cross-country trails. Now, for a limited time, you too can get the Element Tea chocolate medley and enjoy them hot as I have been doing with this exclusive insider bundle for you. When you buy three boxes of any flavor, it doesn't have to be the chocolate, it can be any of the flavors that they offer, you are going to get the fourth box free. If you head over to drinkelement.com forward slash Dr. Estima, you'll see that exclusive offer at the bottom of the page. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And tell me which of the chocolate, Melody, you love the best. I am so happy uh, to be having you on. Uh, Like I was saying before, uh, as a gynecologist, I think that you have a unique perspective in terms of looking at female reproductive health and hormones and women's medicine in general. And I think that there's so many ways that we fail our women in terms of the management of their health, in terms of the biases that not only allopathic doctors, like there's, we really do uh, dismiss female pain and female, uh, the potential for female dysregulation in a way that just doesn't happen with the guys. So I'm really excited to, to have you on here today. So welcome, Great. welcome. I appreciate it. So I wanted to start our conversation. There's sort of three areas that I want to dive into with you. And the, the first was, uh, the first is low testosterone in women. And when we were talking about, you know, what are we going to, what kind of geeky magic can we bring to uh, the better community? one of the things that you suggested, and I thought this was brilliant, was this idea of testosterone deficiency in women. And for women, of course, we always think about, you know, the, the, well, we, we think of of the phenotypic hormone as estrogen, right? But testosterone is actually the most abundant sex hormone that we have. So I wanted to maybe start off our conversation by talking about what role testosterone has in the body and what would be some clinical clues for you that would tip you off to think, okay, maybe this woman, maybe some of the symptoms that she is experiencing are actually aligned with testosterone deficiency. Great. So let me um, preface all this by just saying, uh, I've been doing this for about 20 years, really focused on hormones. Uh, since Suzanne Summers put me in her book, The Sexy Years, and just been really deep on bioidentical hormones and things like that. So that's about probably 12 to 15 years ago. About three years ago, I put together a 36-question quiz because I was really fascinated by the stories I was hearing. And I thought when this quiz was taken by thousands of women that estrogen dominance would be the number one hormone uh, imbalance. But the reality was there were 12 stories that kept coming through But the number one, far and away, I mean, like far and away was testosterone deficiency. And I was pretty shocked myself. I mean, I see it a lot, but I didn't realize it was so rampant. And the women that present, so testosterone deficiency, I talk about hormone imbalances as archetypes and archetypal stories. So testosterone deficiency, obviously, is going to be the nun. And I always joke that you don't want none, you ain't getting none, and he ain't getting none. So... But the nun, the nun is, at least the good nuns, aren't very interested in sex uh, when, when they're, they cloister themselves. So women that, don't have, test, that have testosterone deficiency, I've, I always say, if you had a t-shirt that could describe testosterone deficiency, it would just say, meh, because that's how they present. They are 
things they used to care about. So testosterone is not just a hormone of desire and uh, intercourse. It's also a hormone of drive and just, you know, that what makes you you. It's a feel-good hormone for women too. It makes you simply feel better, but it's good for bones. So in, in, with estrogen, uh, we know that testosterone replacement actually helps build strong bone back. Um, unlike using bisphosphonates, which is a prescription that builds that kind of trabecular bone, that thin bone in the middle. It doesn't, the, the testosterone helps more that cortical bone structure or that really heavy, dense bone. But when I get women that come in for this, the typical story is um, I'm, I'm really just tired at like four in the afternoon. I cannot, I want to take a nap. It's always in the afternoon. Um, you know, obviously husband is interested. He's telling me that there's something wrong with me because that's what men do. We tend to blame you. Um, because obviously we're sex machines. And so there has to be a problem with you. Um, if, if it's one of those things where she's got those, just that feeling of, I don't want to go out with my friends. I don't want to do the things I used to do. And I'm tired. I obviously am not interested in sex. I, I usually will find that when you draw blood, there's two types of testosterone. There's total, there's the total number. And then there's the free number. The total number of testosterone is all the testosterone that's circulating in your body. But there's a protein that floats around called sex hormone binding globulin that grabs onto that testosterone and makes it inactive. And there are a lot of medications. There's a lot of hormone imbalances that make the SHBG level go up, which then drives the free testosterone down. Now, free testosterone is important because that's the active form of testosterone. What's fascinating to me is if you look at a testosterone level in a woman and you look at the lab ranges, normal, one of the normal values is zero. I don't know why. Why? Because, yeah. So it's always like zero to 6.4 on a free testosterone level. And it fascinates me because I don't know how zero of anything could be normal, but, but it is. And what happens is most women will come back, say at 0.3, right? So the doctor will, that's across the board, pretty common, 0.3. I could multiply that 20 fold and it would still be normal, but you might feel a hell of a lot better if I move you up. But right. the women who's the doctors look at the labs and they're like, oh, your testosterone's fine. You're, you can you can go away. But it, you're in the fifth percentile of normal. So it's really this dynamic range. And just sometimes getting people up around that 50th percentile makes a massive difference. I love that. And just to just to double click a little bit on the on the fatigue, one of the things that I have found with women when we're thinking about when we're thinking about any hormonal uh, dysregulation, but in particular with low T is they will say, well, you know what? I'm still like, I'm, I'm getting sleep and I'm also supplementing with naps and I'm still bagged like nomad. And like the activities that I used to do now completely wipe me out. And it, there's just, it's un and it's unrelenting. And if you are able to establish, you know, enough rapport with the patient to actually talk about libido, like I've, we've talked about this on the podcast before where you're talking about free tea and total tea. So I want to I wanna definitely do a deep dive on that. But a really crude measurement, especially for women who are still cyclical, is do you notice that you are kind of more flirty, sexy, you know, you want a little bit more action in the week leading up to ovulation? Because the normal cyclical pattern there throughout the month is that your testosterone peaks in the week leading up to ovulation. So about day, call it seven to, to 14, if we're assuming a, a, a perfect four-week cycle. So you should want it more, right? And of course, we also know that testosterone fluctuates through the day as well. So it's highest in the morning and then it sort of peters off um, 
No pun intended. No, <laughs> no pun intended. And all, I also will say the listener, I, I, I hope that the listeners are going to enjoy this conversation as much as I am because your humor cracks me up. And it's like, there's no better place to have humor when we're talking about vaginas. So I'm like, I'm super happy to be having this conversation. Vaginas are pretty much a boy's dream. If that's all they want to talk about. So, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but one of the things I wanted to highlight is for libido, it, there's almost this, um, and maybe you can comment on this, there's almost this negative cycle because when you have low testosterone, of course, we know that, that uh, your lean muscle mass is going to go down. And like you said, uh, we're going to also get less dense bones and, and bones and, and muscles tend to, they're twins, right? When one goes up, the other one goes up as well. But as it relates to um, reproductive health, when we have muscle wasting, muscle pain, uh, we're going to see, you know, maybe we'll see like poor lubrication. We might see like painful sex, right? Like having sex is going to be more painful. And even just the, um, the pelvic floor muscles that are involved in, in orgasm and climax are also going to be atrophying. So you can also even, and it's, it's rare that a patient's going to be like, Hey, you know what? I think I have low T. I can't, you know, have an orgasm. Um, but we want to be thinking about how that also might be um, something that self-propagates, right? Because if it's painful to have sex because your 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 muscles are wasting away, then you know your drive is also going to be your your motivation to have sex is also going to be uh, attenuated as well. Is that so, is that something that you that you've noticed clinically in practice? Yeah, it's funny because when women come in and they say it hurts when when he inserts the penis. Um, and he still wants to have sex and he doesn't understand it. I said, well, let's, let's, let's talk to the men here. Let's tell him, fine, we'll have sex, but I'm going to take a pencil and I'm going to tap it on your testicle over and over and over again for about seven minutes. And then we can have sex. And when guys come into the office, they're like, oh, really? That's what it's like. I'm like, yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah. So, um, but men, we just, you know, we're cavemen. We don't think the right way, but, um, what I always tell women about low libido is that obviously painful sex is a deterrent because it hurts. And, and what do you do when something's coming at you that's going to hurt is you, you tense up, right? Tense you, up. Yeah, yeah. you tense those muscles that are already sore and you're already dry. So now you've narrowed the caliber of the vagina, you've dried it up. So I just, I have a, a thing I call the 30 minute rule. If you're having that issue where he can do whatever he wants for 30 minutes, but there's no penetration. Mm-hmm. And you set that rule out from the very beginning. He has to agree to it because that will allow you to let your guard down. Um, it will allow you to relax. You start to associate his touch again without pain. Then when you feel ready as the woman, you be on top because controlling the tempo and the depth and that sort of nature, there can't be anything worse than having pelvic pain and being underneath somebody that's right. probably than you in most cases it's such a there's no control there and you have to be in a position of control when you're having pelvic pain because that's what you've lost is that control so that's one issue but what's interesting is low libido i always say i can boost your testosterone to the level of your husband it may not want you may not want to have more sex with him but you may want to rip his face off i mean it's (laughs) aggressive but but if you're dead tired at the end of the day, and let's face it, most people probably have intercourse in the evening. Yeah. If you're already worn out at the end of the day and, and he comes up and he starts putting the moves on you in the kitchen, you're just going to be like, oh, hell no. And I always tell the guys when they come in, I'm like, look, 
I'm not a sex expert because I'm divorced personally, but I've learned a few things listening to 40,000 women over the years. Don't come up to her in the kitchen and kiss her neck and do the dishes. Tell her, tell her to go sit down in, in the living room and just relax. Oh, and that's the best foreplay. Yes. That's, the, that's the best foreplay for me. It's like, you want to take over the kitchen? That's wonderful. Well, we think we got to put the moves on. And it's like, no, your moves after 20 years of marriage do not work anymore. Even if you get new moves, it's still you. But if you surprise her by doing things that you don't normally do, and here's something else. This is off topic. But I learned something being divorced. Laundry is a horrible thing. Okay. It is the worst. thing. You do not have to just put the clothes in the washer. You have to put them in the dryer. Then you have to take them out and fold them. And then you have to put them away. It is like a horrible process. Now, I'm not saying I ever did laundry, but I always thought if you put them in the washing machine and close the door. So I'm thinking now, wow, what a great foreplay would be to actually do all of the laundry and put it back. Oh my God. You'd be like, you'd be like the Messiah. But I feel about groceries. You have to drive to the store, put the food in the cart, take the cart, put the food on the conveyor belt so they can check it out, put it back in the bag, then put it in your cart, then go home and then take it up. That is you caring. That is you taking care of somebody that you love. And and that conveys much more. So low libido is a lot of things, right? It's not just testosterone, but if your testosterone's in the dirt, you're certainly going to have a low libido. And I would also just say some women take a a longer time to lubricate, right? So I think that there is this assumption, whether we get this from the porn industry or cultural expectations or whatever, that a vagina and a clitoris respond in the same way that a penis does, right? And we know that a woman takes a little bit longer to warm up and her lubrication, you know, for her to, you know, be properly lubricated is going to be longer than it's going to take a guy, like a guy can like, you know, come up and kiss you and then he's kind of ready to go. Right. But a woman needs a little bit more. He was ready before that. So yeah, I mean, right. Right. It's it's a engorgement of the blood vessels that surround the vagina. Vagina is a muscle. The blood vessels engorge because of arousal. So guys, she has to be aroused before she can get lubricated. So arousal is that engorgement. And then you get that transudative, um, you know, mucusy type of discharge that lubricates things. But, and it doesn't, it's not like we're talking 20 minutes, but you know, it does take a little time. And so that's the thing. It, she has to be aroused and you, you got to take your time. So let's talk a little bit about hair loss. Cause that's another one that I will often, and you see this with gut, you see this with men and women, but with women, usually for me, the clinical pearl or the clinical sort of tip off is, well, you know, I have to wrap my ponytail elastic band around my ponytail a few more times than I used to. Or for me, uh, like I tend to wear my hair in a bun. So if I, you know, if I, if, if, you know, the question might be, do you have to wrap your, you know, elastic band around your bun a little bit more, which, which might, um, uh, indicate that there's like a global loss of hair or even just the, the individual shaft of the hair as well. Is that something that you, is that an early sign, would you say, or a late sign or happen? It can happen at any time. Hair loss for me, I mean, in my clinic rampant, almost every woman comes in and it's not loss per se, like big patchy stuff. It's more thinning, right? Yeah. Um, And so, uh, it's, it's, I hear it all the time. I personally feel that hair loss is a delayed response, probably a couple of months. So if you're really having thinning hair, it's not because of something that happened last week. In most cases, it's delayed. And we know that from hair testing that, you know, you've got levels in your, in your hair shafts of like, you know, 
heavy metals and whatnot, but it's from previous exposures because the hair cycle is a little bit uh, longer. The thing that I find interesting about hair loss is it comes down to hormonally, thyroid and testosterone are the, the two big ones. Now, if you remember when you're pregnant, you have gray hair. I mean, it's like, that's the, that's the, the bomb diggity of hair. And then what happens is you have your baby and all of a sudden all your hair's in the drain, right? It's like, you notice that it's just coming out in clumps. And the reason for that is the high, high levels of progesterone when you're pregnant, because progesterone, we'll go back to micro, microbiology, uh, which I hated, by the way, but I remember this. Um, you know, the different phases of cell growth, um, antigen, you know, all that, whatever. But anyways, hair, progesterone makes hair stop in the telogen phase. And right after the telogen phase is when hair falls out. So yeah. progesterone stops that dead in its track. So you're pregnant and your locks are just gorged. And then you deliver your baby and your progesterone just plummets, which I also think is part of the reason for postpartum depression. Um, and, and all of a sudden, all that hair that was going to fall out for all those months starts falling out in droves. So you feel like, oh my God, I'm losing all this hair. But it was kind of the hair that was supposed to fall out. But we also see this, I see so much subclinical hypothyroidism, meaning their labs don't necessarily say they're overtly hypothyroid, but they're down around that 10th percentile of normal for like a T3. And their hair is really thinning. And I can't tell you how many times if you just get them up around 50%, they'll notice a, a month or two later that their hair is starting to come back. And the same with testosterone. Women really fear testosterone therapy for two things. One, well, three things. One is acne, one is hair loss, and the other is they don't want to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So you're not going to look like Arnold, but the reason that you, there's two reasons testosterone causes hair loss. And one of them is low T because the hair follicle is anabolic. It responds to testosterone and it grows just like other tissues grow. Yeah. So if you're too low, or if you're on the other end and you're too high and you're converting your testosterone into dihydrotestosterone and you have high levels, that's what causes male pattern baldness. You can bring in Giovanni if you want, so we can demonstrate that. But uh, that was a low blow, sir. <laughs> man, so I'd take it. I can't. He's evolve. a sexy man. Yes, agreed. <laughs> like an acorn, so I can't really yeah. do. That. Um, but no, but that's the thing, and that's what thing women fear testosterone. But if you have high testosterone and you have hair loss, it's going to be that receding hairline. It's not going to yeah. be thinning. So that's mostly low T. Uh, sometimes low progesterone. Um, and then, so a combination of thyroid or th uh, progesterone, testosterone can really make hair a lot better. That's actually a really interesting observation because I always thought that the low hair, like the, the global hair loss from low T was because the relative ratio of testosterone to DHT was now changed. So now we had less T relative to DHT and that's why we were getting hair loss. But what you're, what you're saying is slightly more nuanced than that. You're saying that the, when you have high uh, levels of testosterone, you have an accelerated, or correct me if I'm wrong here, but you have an accelerated conversion to DHT. And that's where you get like that male pattern baldness around the temples and low T you're, can you explain that one more time? I just want to make sure that I understood that. Think about muscle hypertrophy. So when you, when you have higher levels of testosterone or bone, you know, growth. Same thing with hair. So hair has an anabolic uh, aspect to it. So yeah. and testosterone is purely anabolic. So if you give testosterone to someone that's low, their, their hair cells aren't, aren't getting stimulated by testosterone at all because they're like at point one. And then you boost that up to, you know, 3.0, which is a 30 fold increase. 
all of a sudden the hair just starts lighting back up and, and growing. But the hair, the ratio that you're talking about in women is so much lower than in men who have testosterone levels three to 900 mm-hmm. uh, that, that it really, even if she converts to DHT, which I've honestly not seen really maybe three or four times in my career where I had to put a woman on something like spironolactone or saw palmetto or something because her testosterone levels were so high. And that happens from pellets usually, or like an ovarian or adrenal tumor. So it's kind of a rarity. Well, it's more common now because women are on hormone pellets, which that's a whole nother story. But, um, but I have three women last week whose testosterone levels were, their totals were in the 300s and they feel miserable. Mm-hmm. So pellets don't like them. For women. Oh, don't like it. And so let's talk about, well, I mean, the next obvious question here is what are some of the reasons why a woman's tea, her testosterone can take a nosedive? Like why would, why would, what would be some of the causes for seeing low testosterone in women? I would say the number one is obesity. Um, uh, we just have more, if you have more, uh, more fat, you're going to have more estrogen usually. More estrogen drives up that protein I talked about earlier, that sex hormone binding globulin drives down your free testosterone. It's the same in men too. Men with a lot of abdominal fat tend to have lower T. I think that sleep deprivation is a huge one. Um, it just, you know, the, it affects your adrenal glands. So um, interestingly enough, though, if you're stressed and you're making a ton of DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone, that can convert into testosterone, but yes, yes. it's not a healthy way to do it. So, um, but that's the other thing is I also check in women that have low T, I'll check their DHEA because if they're low in both, then I might replace both um, because you get kind of a double whammy. You'll get a little bit of conversion and you'll get the direct effect. But I think sleep, uh, diet for sure, a uh, lack of exercise, um, and, and just kind of the, just, I think the way we live our lives with the chemicals and things around us. And where does, how does aging play into it? Well, we have a decline, obviously, as we age. Um, I think uh, for women, well, first of all, when women are younger, and we may hit on this later, the number one reason for low T in a younger woman is birth control pills. Uh, Oh, yes, I want to touch on that. Mm -hmm. Birth control pills, notoriously lower testosterone. Um, But usually, I would say it's going to be one of those things with aging just in general, the ovaries themselves for women, unfortunately, kind of poop out around 50, 51. The ovaries make 50% of a woman's testosterone. The adrenal production is the other 50%. So right off the bat, as she hits perimenopause, uh, menopause around 45 to 50, she's going to take about a 50% hit on top of what she might already have going just based on exercise and, and the, the you know, just lifestyle issues. Mm-hmm. So let's think about the some of the differentials like you'd mentioned uh, an underactive thyroid or hypothyroidism it's it's low t can be tricky right because there are other issues that behave just like it like if you had a patient come into your clinic and she's complaining of like i'm gaining weight and i'm exhausted i'm always cold my hair's falling out never had those complaints Never. No, we always tell them you're, it's all in your head. <laughs> you're not experiencing that. I know. Uh, but, th- but those are things that, that can line up with hypothyroidism. It can line up with uh, anemia, uh, an autoimmune condition, it can, it, depression. Like these are, these are things that all sort of sound like each other. So you mentioned the free and total testosterone. So let's just, uh, I want to maybe just do a bit of a a deeper dive here. So let's explain the difference between 
total testosterone, free testosterone. And then I'd love your, you'd mentioned a few labs, but what is your kind of optimal and understanding the context is important, but what's sort of the optimal lab numbers that you'd like to see for, for both of those? So total is, is a no brainer. And usually anymore, it used to be a lot of primary care docs would just order a total testosterone. Mm-hmm. The labs, like the big labs, like Sonora and LabCorp and some of the others, they they have changed it. So if you order a testosterone, they you get a total, you get a free testosterone, and you get a sex hormone binding globulin. You know, those three things are usually done together. Yeah. In a woman that comes to me that just has a total testosterone, I mean, if it's so normal, is going to be of a total is probably going to be around. Uh, let's, I, I think it's around nine to fifty-two or something like that, and. Mm-hmm. And, and most women, so if I know if a woman comes in and her total is 19, her free is probably going to be low as well because she doesn't have a whole lot of testosterone floating around. But you're not so concerned about the total testosterone because that total testosterone, a percentage of that is going to be bound up by this sex hormone binding yeah. mm-hmm. So that will then, when it grabs onto the testosterone, it inactivates it. So that's why you want to know the free testosterone because that's the percentage or that's the actual hormone floating around in your body that can activate your receptors wherever it is on bone, on you know vaginal health, on hair and all those things. So if you look at a total te- uh, free testosterone, like I said, it's going to be zero to 6.4 usually is the number. And I would say 95% of the time women will come in to my office under 1.0. Um, it's usually much lower than that, like around 0.3, 0.1, but in general, 95% are under that 1.0. And that is almost across the board. I mean, I, I see women that are in their twenties and they have low testosterone, so it's pretty rampant. And so what are the, let's talk about some of the options for treatment then. So there's, and, and there seems to be a lot of controversy or controversy in terms of TRT for women. Um, we were mentioning in our, in our exchange, you're like, there's like 10 medications for guys, but there's no, uh, there's no FDA approved, um, you know, path for, for women. So wh- how do you navigate that? I mean, I have some thoughts, I have some strong thoughts on, on lifestyle interventions in terms of how to elevate T, but how would you approach that as a, as a clinician in practice? Well, you having strong thoughts is a shocker to me. <laughs> I'm just mortified by that. But, um, so <laughs> <laughs> so to get, so to to really come at it, you want to talk about like the different therapies or what the s- steps you can do to raise your testosterone, both. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Okay. I'm your pa- I Imagine I'm your patient. Um, I'm coming in at like 0.3 and you're like, okay. And I have all the symptoms, low libido, hair loss, you know, weight gain, all, all the things, chronic fatigue that's unrelenting. What would be, what would be some of the options that you might present to me? I kind of look at all of these imbalances in six ways usually. So for like, let's talk about the nun archetype of the, the yeah. low testosterone woman. Uh, I always have this kind of what I would call a spiritual practice or something that is just some sort of a practice in your life that you do. Now, what is it? And if I look at the storyline, what is it that nuns do that could make them, you know, not feel great? Well, they cloister, they stay indoors. They don't go out and so a spiritual practice that I have for women that do this is you need to go out. Um, you need to go interact with people, whether it's at the mall, just get out and move a little bit and just interact with whether it's family or whatever, but don't stay in the house. You got to break that pattern. Uh, hormones would be another option. Obviously, uh, you can give a woman direct hormone replacement. You said 
There is no FDA approved form of testosterone that you can give to a woman. So you have it, have it compounded. It's bioidentical and it can be made. What's interesting, uh, you know, how we have Viagra, which is a blue pill. About six years ago, they came out with a pink pill that was called Adi. And I think it's still available. Um, interesting. This, this is fascinating. It's a, it's supposed to be the pink pill. So it's, it was supposed to make women have a better sex drive. Right. Mm -hmm. And the study that was done on Adi, the pilot had no women in it. So how they even figured that out, I don't know, but it also was had nothing to do with sex drive. It was an antidepressant. It was similar to Prozac. So basically what we're conveying to women is it's all in your head, right? Um, it's fascinating to me. So that's a side note. But I think hormone replacement obviously would be a, a big gun to bring in. Um, I look at things like um, sometimes I'll, I'll go off. I, I was talking earlier about how I have a 20 to 25% woo factor. Um, I like to talk about acupuncture. Um, I'll sometimes refer patients if they're into essential oils, um, you know, things like Vitex or, um, you know, some of the more stimulating ylang ylang or citrus blends. Um, I often defer to Maritza Snyder's book for that because she's the expert. Um, I look at things like uh, exercise, obviously high intensity interval training, uh, muscle building, you know, weightlifting with big joint movements like squats, where you're going to get more bang for your buck. Um, because the more muscle you can build, obviously your testosterone will increase. Yeah. Nutrition, um, I tend to go higher protein, higher good fat with people and trying to lower carbs, which is kind of more your area, but that's what I usually recommend. And then last would be supplements. And supplements are kind of like, you know, one of those things you can add in. I think if you're on a good multivitamin, some zinc, some boron, you have a good like fish oil, if you're not getting enough um, uh, healthy fats, omega-3s, and then maybe even some of the weird stuff if you want to try like horny goat weed because it just sounds cool, but or (laughs) tribulus or- Hopefully the name will confer the benefit of the- Well, it could be placebo for all I know, but- um, (laughs) But yeah, so I kind of come at it from all those aspects. Yeah. And I I love what you're saying because this, and this is why I wanted to talk to you because you, you would go to, uh, first, I don't think that there's many gynecologists that are speaking about testosterone deficiency in women. So I think that in and of itself, um, is one of the reasons why I wanted you um, on the show, but to recommend things like exercise and dietary modifications, as much as that is normal to you and me, we know that that does not necessarily happen. Um, we cannot paint broad uh, brushstrokes, unfortunately, for uh, a lot of practitioners. So I applaud you for for saying that. And you're right, high intensity interval training, lifting heavy weights. And this is, you know, comes back to, you said, you know, people are scared of taking, women are scared of taking testosterone because they're worried about looking like the Hulk. And I, I hear the same, I bump up against the same resistance. Um, when we talk about lifting heavy weights, I don't want to bulk up. I don't want to look like a bodybuilder. And my conversation with, with them is, I assure you, they are taking exogenous testosterone and other proxies to look like that. You don't have the testosterone. I mean, if you have low testosterone, it's not even a question. But even if your testosterone is what is considered normal for a woman, it is you can't look like that. And heavy weights is so, so very important um, for improving testosterone. I, the only thing I would add to, uh, to your relatively in- inclusive list would be vitamin D. Um, we know that supplementation with vitamin... There's been... And I'll link to this in the show notes, but 
supplementing with a minimum of 3,000 international units per day has been shown over the course, I think there's been a bunch of studies. The one that I'm thinking about in particular was 12 months, increased testosterone by 25%. And I, everybody's deficient in vitamin D for the most part. Yes, yes. It's actually, it's, it's estimated that about half of the U.S. population is deficient. And then an even larger number is like not considered deficient, but they're kind of, you know, they're sort of in that, uh, they're, they're bordering it. So that's the thing is, you know, most people come in at 30 or 35 and we like to see them up around 60 to 80. Yeah. And the other thing I would say is have more sex. Yeah. Right? More sex. You know. God, if you're kind of lethargic um, and you're and you're just kind of spent, it's hard to get out there and exercise. And I get that. Mm-hmm. That's why I come. It's a if I give you a little bit of testosterone to get you boosted a little bit, but then you got to do the rest of it, right? I mean, you've got to go out and and do the exercise. And it would be the same for men. How many men I know that are on testosterone replacement therapy, but they still eat horrible. They don't mm-hmm. exercise, and they might feel better, but it's not really doing it. You know, I mean, it's. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. It's kind of lazy. It's lazy medicine. It's like you're fixing the end result, but you're not helping them with all the other pieces. Yeah. And you were saying in your opinion that obesity is one of the biggest drivers for low T. So one, you know, one of the best things we can do is reduce adiposity, right? Reduce excess adipose tissue through. And even if it's just some calisthenics, like even if it's just walking around your neighborhood for 20 minutes, doesn't matter how slow you go, you know, we all start somewhere, right? Like we didn't, like I didn't come out of the womb, like squatting, you know, as much as I like to pretend that I did, you know, it it takes time to, it takes time to build up a new habit. So um, I also love the idea of just being gentle with yourself because I think, you know, you were saying um, with too much testosterone, you're just going to want to rip off someone's face. Like there's also, there's also something to be said around being gentle and and forgiving yourself and just saying, okay, like this is, this is where we are. It's you and me, buddy. You know, this, this is where we are. And, you know, we're just going to put one foot, um, one foot in front of the other. Totally. And I think um, part of it, you hit on that is if you are overweight, and you, you know, you gained 30 pounds, when you look at yourself in the mirror and you shame yourself, that's not going to make you want to have sex either. So yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of aspects. And I, you know, we are probably our, our own worst critics. I know I am. So um, that self-care, that self-love is probably a huge piece as well. I am incredibly bullish on sauna as a therapy for recovery, heart health, and overall aging well. I personally decided on an infrared sauna from Sunlighten because of the range of far wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that it offers. Saunas help with detoxification and rejuvenation to rid your body of toxins. It helps with heart health by improving circulation, reducing blood pressure, and helping keep the arteries supple. It helps with muscle recovery by easing the tension and soreness to recover faster. And of course, stress reduction with the warmth and the relaxation of sitting in a sauna it's crucial for hormonal balance and achieving a state of well-being necessary for a strong physique and a strong mind. If you visit sunlighten.com slash better and use code better to get a discount. That is sunlighten, S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T-E-N.com slash B-E-T-T-E-R and use code better at checkout. I want to shift a little bit into a conversation around endometriosis. Um, we were talking offline that 
I was sharing a stat with you. I read that um, it takes somewhere between seven to 12 years for a woman to actually get an official uh, diagnosis of endo. And this is another area. So in addition to the low testosterone, the management of endometriosis in a classic allopathic model, um, I think there's been a lot of shortcomings. Can we say that? Um, and, and I think part of it is, and I, I don't remember if we, we were saying this pre-chat or on the podcast, but a lot of times women are dismissed, right? They'll go into the doctor and they'll be complaining of pelvic pain, menstrual pain. And because we have normalized menstrual pain, like, oh, just take a mitol. Oh, just take a this. Just get on. Here's a birth control pill. We dismiss menstrual pain. And I, I mean, you know me, Sean, I am uh, very much a word nerd. Like, words really do matter. And when we think about common versus normal, right? Like just because menstrual pain occurs commonly doesn't mean that it's normal. Yeah. I wanted to, I wanted to, I wanted to sort of bridge the low T with a conversation around um, endometriosis. And there's a lot of women, and it's so interesting because when I, when I was polling my, um, uh, tribe community around who wanted to hear about what type of fat, like what type of population to how to fast. One of the biggest questions was, well, if I have endometriosis, can I fast? And, um, of course I have some thoughts on that. Uh, no surprise to you there, but, um, maybe you can, maybe you can walk us through what endometriosis is. So endometriosis, first off, you know, the interesting thing, since you're a word nerd, um, if you look at the word, and maybe you've already done this, but if you look at the word hysterectomy, yes. it means uh, your hysteria. So we already ages ago like, thought that all of your problems were down in your pelvis, right? And that hasn't changed, unfortunately. That's actually how vibrators were um, uh, invented. I don't know if you know this, but we like the word hysterical comes from like, oh, she's like, you know, her uterus is crazy. And so what doctors used to do was they would masturbate, like manually masturbate a woman to orgasm to try and calm her down. And then their hands were getting tired. So they created vibrators. So I don't know if you, if that's... Like- I probably wouldn't have gone into this if that was still around. <laughs> Dermatology or something. You're like, yeah, I'll do, I'll do internal medicine. <laughs> um, endometriosis is the lining of the uterus yep. that implants outside of the uterus. So usually the number one site is going to be the ovary, um, but I have seen it implant itself. Uh, some of the crazier places I've seen it is a woman that came in with pain in her perineum, that area between the vagina and the rectum. Yeah. Um, and she had an episiotomy when she had her baby. And basically when they sewed her up, uh, she developed endo in that uh, scar. And so she was having horrible pain. And I had to excise that endometriosis. I've seen it in the lung. I've seen it in the brain. Those are excessive cases, but usually it's somewhere in the pelvis. Um, it's uh, the amount of endometriosis that you have in the body does not correlate with the pain level. So even tiny amounts of endo can be exquisitely painful um, because it responds because it's, it's uterine tissue. It responds to your cycle. Uh, it it bleeds or at least causes severe inflammation wherever it is in your body. And so like the woman that had it in her lungs, whenever she was having her period, she would have blood cough. She'd have hemoptysis, cough blood. Um, It has to be thought of as a chronic disease. Um, It may never, ever completely be gone, but we can certainly make it 
a heck of a lot better with lifestyle. And, and some women obviously do need surgery uh, if it's bad and they can't live their lives. And that's, that's kind of when I look at surgery is like, can you, I always ask this question, is the pain so bad that it is affecting the way that you want to live your life? And obviously we've exhausted other options. And if she says yes, then that's when I think it's time to, to probably fix it. The reason that I think it takes so long, other than the obvious, you know, that we diminish women's um, findings, is that one, it, you can't see it. Uh, two, uh, usually a lot of these women are seeing their primary care docs first. So they're getting put on a birth control pill and a birth control pill will potentially keep it at bay. It doesn't, it's not going to fix anything. It covers it up. So that could extend their diagnosis by years, um, usually. Um, and then overall, it's just this process of, monthly having a cycle if it's on your fallopian tubes or it can cause inflammation it can cause scarring and over time it can really just wreak havoc in the pelvis yeah yeah i i classify it as a it is i don't know if it is it, it looks like an autoimmune condition like it looks like an inflammatory condition it almost looks to me like ra would like rheumatoid arthritis or inflammatory uh, bowel disease. Like I'd put all the, I sort of lump those all into uh, the same category in that they are inflammatory diseases. Um, of course, endo is like, it's dependent on estrogen, right? So it, it flares up in, um, when we have the first rise of estrogen, we tend to get, you know, women complaining of pain or this middle smirch, this pain in the, in the middle of their cycle, like right around ovulation, because we have that spike of uh, of estrogen, then again uh, in the in the in the luteal phase, um, and we know progesterone helps because women that end up getting pregnant that have endo feel better usually. Yes, yes. so high, and progesterone is an estrogen receptor blocker, so it does it adds something. So women that are estrogenically dominant and have low progesterone is kind of a double whammy to endo. It's a, it very much can stimulate things. It's so interesting. I've read I've read a couple of papers on this theory that women with endo are more progesterone resistant. Meaning, and this makes sense to me because I remember in the clinic I would always joke to my concussion patients, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna get concussed, do it in the you know for my females obviously, you know, if you're gonna get concussed, do it in the first half of your cycle, like do it right before progesterone peaks because progesterone has that kind of ability to rein in the immune, you know, that overactivation, that hyperactivity of the um, of the immune system. And there's been some papers where there's been sort of this theory that's been proposed around women with endo being progesterone resistant. Um, and when you couple that with an overactive immune system um, and things like microbiome, like I want to talk a little bit to you about what your thoughts are on like hyperpermeability of the gut microbiome. Because um, I have, um, I, I think that there's like hyper, this is what I think. I think that there's hyperpermeability in the gut microbiome. They tend to have SIBO, like there's like small intestinal, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And then we get these gram-negative bacteria like E. coli or whatever that have LPS. And then we get this, tr this, this translocation of the, of the bacteria from the gut lumen into the pelvic microbiome, like you were saying. Like it happens all over the pelvis. Like you can kind of see it anywhere. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't, you probably know a little bit more about, about this, but we obviously know that a lot of the hormone production, at least what they're calling now the estrobolome, which is kind of the 
grouping of bacteria that make hormones in the guts as well. Mm. And we can also detoxify through the gut. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Dominant, which adds to endo, uh, tend to, they, they, they need more fiber. They need to inhibit glucuronidase so that we can, you can excrete your excess estrogen. So of course it's totally related. So do you, do, in your practice, do you do uh, surgeries around endo? Yes. And that has changed pretty dramatically in the last few years. We used to do laparoscopy where you put a camera in and then we would find the endo and we would usually just burn it. We would just kind of cauterize it. Yeah. What we have found is that the, the, the depth that the endometriosis goes, what was happening is you're probably burning 75% of it and it just kind of comes right back. Right. So doctors now that are specializing in endometriosis, it's an excisional surgery. So you're, you're kind of trimming away the, the peritoneum, which is the shiny part on the inside of the pelvis. Um, and you, you really got some of those implants, though, they go pretty deep. I mean, you have to be very surgically aware of like the ureters and the bowel and, and things like that to really try to restore normal anatomy. But if you do an excisional surgery and you're excising the, the big areas of peritoneum, you will regrow peritoneum, but it's dram- sometimes it can be a pretty dramatic shift from mm-hmm. very little pain. And, and what, what do you recommend on top of that? Because one of the things that I, when I think about endometriosis, there's things that I, you know, in terms of my own uh, ability to help patients, I'm not going to be, I'm going to refer patients for surgery. I'm going to refer them over to you. But I think that as a natural healthcare provider, I have a, a big role to help in reducing the overactivation of the immune system. And I like to do that through things like diet and fasting and supplementation. What are some, what are some of the uh, holistic um, or complementary uh, therapies that you may bring in in addition to surgery? Well, surgery before and after for endo, you, you have to maintain hormonal balance. You can't you can't allow somebody to continue some estrogen dominant state or PCOS or something and just do surgery on them and think that it's not going to come back. I mean, you're basically fixing the problem, but you're not fixing the long-term problem or how she got there in the first place. Um, So that's key for me. I think diet, I kind of follow what you do. I like intermittent fasting along with a more ketotic environment. I also like to supplement with, um, I, I like Zyphelmin. Um, it's just a really good you know, turmeric and uh, holy basil, rosemary. I think it really helps with inflammation throughout the body. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I would say that it's, I focus at least in my area more on the gut rebuilding, you know, making sure that that's stable, uh, liver detoxification and um, the hormonal balance part. Yeah. And what are... Um you, you, did you? I'm sorry. Did you mention the supplements? I I I missed that. What were the supplements? Yeah, I like Zyphelmin. Uh That's mm-hmm. a big one for me. Um, it depends on if they're having a lot of pain. I actually will ask them to use CBD. You know, just for pain control. I think we know CBD is actually a great anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of into um, mushrooms. Not those kind of mushrooms, but you know, um, mushrooms you actually can eat, like reishi and. Um, lion's mane. Um, they're just uh, Stamets makes a one, you know, Paul Stamets is the guru and he has a supplement that has 
seven different kinds of mushrooms. I use that one a lot. Um, and just really maintaining an environment where your progesterone levels are going to be optimized. Yeah. Uh, I think that's key. And the, the one thing is women think that if they eat a lot of yams, their progesterone is going to be up. That's a total myth. Um, Why do people think that? I hear that a lot too. Why is that? They make progesterone and estrogen from wild yam. That's where they make it from. But you have to do it in a lab. It's a, it's, a, it's a compound called dioscorea, and in our bodies, we can't convert it. Uh, but they can make it in a lab. They just have to convert it. So I think it mm-hmm. came from that aspect that it came from yams. So then you get companies that will make wild yam cream and, and all that stuff. And, and for some women, it works, but it's not chemically doing anything. So well, that and, might be just the placebo. And they're, they're expensive. So you're spending all this money on something that's mm-hmm. probably not doing any good. Right, right. Yeah, I love, I love, love, love the ketogenic diet for a woman with endo. Uh, and I particularly, at, when it comes to fasting, depending on the severity of the, the case that I'm dealing with, I, and we've talked about this and I've talked about this on, on uh, your, uh, your shows as well, is there's different ways that we can fast, right? So we talk about caloric restriction, there's non-caloric liquid fasting, there's caloric liquid fasting. I love caloric liquid fasting. So having a woman drink and as you know, we have to train her tolerance for fasting to increase, you know, her ability to go longer, um, doing a longer fast. But I love the idea of giving her a bone broth fast for like two to three days. And depending on, you know, the severity, I might do that once or twice, um, um, a month because what you're doing with the college, you know, when you're, when you're taking in the glutamine, um, from the um, uh, from the bone broth is you are of course helping that intestinal hyperpermeability and then the epithelial cells of the gut are also going to gobble that up and use that for um, for food. So when we're thinking about healing the gut, like whenever someone says, "Well, I just want to fast," you know, we have to always think about what's the goal, right? What is the goal with the fasting? Is it weight loss? Is it energy? Is it gut repairing? So I'd love for um, if a woman can do a non-caloric liquid fast, that's really great. But I also love in terms of taking a gut reparation um, filter to give her a bone broth um, uh, fast. That's my, that's my favorite, my little clinical thing that I love to do. You know what? What's really funny is women, a lot of them, by the time they get to me, they, they don't want to do that. They want to just have surgery. So it's hard for me to sometimes try to do something a little less invasive. If I get somebody early on, then I can do it. But yeah. I would do then is carry that into the post-op care, you know, kind of bring that in to kind of, okay, let's not have this ever come back. You know, let's really focus on trying to rebuild things afterwards because unfortunately after surgery, you know, we've decimated your, you know, your bacteria because we have to use an antibiotic and, you know, and you got to detox all that. So, but it's, it's, it, I think it's probably 90% preventative and structural and 10% would be medications and surgeries. Endo can be really managed pretty well um, by doing other things. Yeah. And the, the only other thing I would add is for any woman that's listening, um, endometriosis, as we've been discussing, is obviously not something that you've done wrong, right? It's not like type 2 diabetes where it's a lifestyle preventive, you know, it's like some, or, or you know, a cardiovascular disease where it's like, okay, these are the things that we've been talking about where 
choices that you chose not to do. Like there's, there's a, there's a huge immune component, um, to this. And, um, like you were saying, it's, it's, it, it ebbs and flows with your cycle. Right. So it's really important to, that there's no shame in it. Um, not because the, the theories that are floating around, one is retrograde menstruation. So some women, they think might actually have blood flow go up and out the tubes into the pelvis, which then some of those cells that are alive can implant. Um, there's some thought process. I personally think that when we do C-sections, we're cutting into the uterus, um, pieces of tissue are obviously everywhere and that can give them access. Um, and I think that there's a theory as well, not just the autoimmune one, but that some women are just born with endometrial implants in their mm-hmm. pelvis. And as they yeah. age, those are the girls that kind of have pain just when they start. Like the toxic exposure in utero kind of thing. So there's a lot of theories, but they, all of the theories are totally not your fault. So, I mean, yeah. Nothing. Yeah. And now I'd like you to talk about Assure because I was learning about this in preparation for our, our conversation today. And this is where I'd like to, I'd like to parse this with a discussion on the birth control pill and your views on it, but I didn't know what Assure was. Um, it's something that you talk about a lot. I think it's a big part of your surgical practice. And I was, I was, I was horrified um, when I was reading about the mechanism of action, you know, the insertion, the complications that happen from it. So before we kind of get into, um, you know, your, your professional opinion on it, let's, let's talk about what Assure is, why it exists. And why, what would be some of the scenarios in which a woman would opt in um, to have this in her body? So Esure came out in 2002. Um, it was billed as, whenever we did uh, tubules or sterilization in women, um, basically there were two ways to do that. One would be directly after the baby. You make a little incision under the belly button, you bring the tube up through the belly button and you tie a piece of it off and then excise this little knuckle. Um, so you'd have a teeny little incision on your belly button. If it was what's called an interval tubal, meaning you're you know, 40 and you just want your tubes tied, we would put a camera in the belly button and then either burn the tubes or put a fallope ring on there or some other device to just close the tube off. So it usually required surgery. Um, whereas men can get a vasectomy. Obviously, I always say the best form of female birth control is vasectomy. But... Um, this, the, the women would always have to have an abdominal surgery, which is risky. There's always risk with abdominal surgery. So when Esher came out, it was kind of like this holy grail moment where we can do sterilizations without a surgical procedure. We don't have to cut. We don't have to do anything horrendous. So it's a little coil. It's a, it's a little inner rod with a coil that goes around it, kind of like a spring, like a slinky almost. And the thought was, well, you went in vaginally and you put a camera inside the cervix you filled the uterus up with a little fluid. You could see the openings of the tubes and you would slide this device inside there and deploy it. And when you deployed it, the spring would open and it would hold itself inside the tube. Over a three-month period, the, the, this is the interesting part. The, the coils are coated with a compound called polyethyl trephalate, which is basically polyester. And that would cause an irritation, right? It's inflamed. Um, so over three months, that inflamed tube would call in white blood cells and fibroblasts and all this stuff and scar itself shut. And then you couldn't have any more babies. 
the problem was a little short-sighted on all of our parts because I did put some in in the beginning. Um, inflammation doesn't turn off. It just, you know, it's not like the device all of a sudden says, okay, we can turn off now. But it's permanent too. So um, it's, it, you, the thought, I think they didn't think far enough, like what do we do if women have a problem? Like with IUDs, uh, you can take them out. They just come out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but with these, there was no forethought really about what to do if they, if somebody said, oh, I don't want these anymore, you know, or um, I'm having pain or I'm having heavy periods. So it's, it was a problem that I didn't really get into until about 2013. So I pulled some of the risks. I went um, to a website. I have some of the risks here. I just want to read them out to you uh, and for the listener. So perforation, expulsion, and other unsatisfactory location of the insert, punctured uterine walls, pregnancy, and increased risk of ectopic pregnancies, pain, cramping, vaginal bleeding, menstrual pattern changes, light periods at first, and then longer, heavier, heavier periods lasting up to six to eight weeks, nausea, vomiting, uh, vasovagal response, which is just fainting, allergic reaction to the materials, a heightened allergic response to other allergens, heavy metal toxicity, itchy raised rashes, brain fog, autoimmune system, weight gain, anxiety, depression, hair loss, severe anxiety, numbness. I mean, I sound like a commercial now, like you know, joint pain, back pain, suicidal thoughts. Sometimes, and this is kind of, I, I want to parse this with a conversation around the birth control pill because we, as women, I think are much more willing to have things cut off and cut out um, than men are. And as we attach ourselves to the promise, we divorce ourselves from the risks. We don't think about some of the the complications that can happen. And, you know, with the pill, I mean, we did a, we did a deep dive with uh, Jolene Brighton, who I know, you know, well. Um, so there's like a two part series that we have. I can't recall what episodes they are, but um, I'll have them in the show notes for people. But I made this joke. Um, I can't remember if I made this joke to her or, you know, this was just like my own, you know, I'm making a joke to myself because that's, the, I, I think sometimes um, I'm hilarious, but um, yes. You laugh at yourself. I laugh at my own jokes, right? Like there's, there's, there's a reason why there's no male equivalent, right? Like there's a reason why there's no coil uh, that is going to go into the penis and cause inflammation and scarring. And there's, there's a reason why, you know, the male birth control pill, like I'm using air quotes if you can't, if you're listening to this on audio, you know, there's like this joke in these like, con- uh, you know, contraception circles that, you know, the male pill is like five years away from being on the market and it's been that way for the past 40 years. Like men would never, never do that to themselves. So I wanted to... I wanted your your thoughts on this. Like you see this all the time, right? You're an OBG, like you're you're a gynecologist. Like you see women with these procedures, and you're undoing these procedures now. Uh, and then, of course, I know that you you must be managing women on on birth control. And maybe this is a simplistic question, but I'm curious to your thoughts on why do you think that why are we so permissive for for these? Um, what I can only describe as like diabolical interventions, like these these crazy interventions in in our bodies. 
without, without research, without long-term studies, without data to support their efficacy or their safety? I think, you know, and Jolene would probably be a wealth of information on the, the derivation of the birth control pill. I think sometimes the thought processes are good intent wise, but then what happens is the money aspect becomes part of it. And you have companies that do research on their own products. Well, they're not going to publish something that's negative because they've got a billion dollars invested in it. So there's a definite bias in, in that, but there's just a bias in society in general that birth control has always been um, a burden for the woman, not for a man. And, and that's, gosh, that's so much deeper that um, I think the ramifications of, and if you look at women who um, I talk to them all the time, well, what do you, why is your husband, can he get a vasectomy? And she's like, oh, he'll never do that. Well, why? You know, why? What's, well, he just, he's afraid of it or whatever. And that's usually, and then they, but it's like almost like a taboo topic. Like they don't even want to bridge it with him because they don't want to get yelled at or, and I, and I, I just always think that um, I, I didn't have to do it because after our last kid, she was having a C-section and they just tied her tubes. But I, and it, you know, I mean, I'm a guy, I think about going in and getting the snip and it's like, oh, that doesn't sound great. But I mean, it's much easier for me to do that in an office than my, my significant other to go to an operating room and have something put in her abdomen that can, I mean, I, I had a woman at a hospital where I was working that had a tubal and she had to have 27 units of blood because the aorta got hit when she was having the tubal. And that's a risk. So what you're getting into too, though, I think is this concept of informed consent. Mm-hmm. Yes. We don't, we, and I'm, I'm just as probably guilty of this as so many other people. We don't sit there and do what you just did. We don't sit there and read verbatim all of the negative side effects, right? Because if we did that, especially for something like Esher, and this is, a, this is where I get in trouble, if you read that list to a woman, do you think any intelligent female would sit there and go, oh, yes, I totally want that? No. So I can tell you when that's being presented, it's not being presented like that. It's like it's minimally invasive. There's really small side effects. It might cramp a little when it goes in, um, but it's, there's no cutting. It's the way that we're presenting it. We're not really doing a great job with informed consent. And then to protect my colleagues... I think that the initial pilot study, at least for Esure, was flawed and biased. And we believed what we were told by the FDA because you kind of have to at some point, you know, it's like, well, I mean, I'm hoping they vetted it, you know, Um, but I don't think it was vetted properly. Um, I I know they would argue that point with me, but um, just as a proviso, the company that designed it is not the company that now manufactures it. So it's a really unfortunate thing that the company that bought it gets a lot of negative, but they didn't design it. Um, and I think it's the same with birth control pills. I will say that I have a 26-year-old daughter, and when she was uh, 14, I, you know, you have to make that decision for your, for your daughter. I wanted her to be protected because, you know, boys aren't going to put a condom on most of the time because of this same issue. They don't feel like they need to. Um, when my daughter was that young, I asked her if she wanted to be on birth control. And um, I think there's a reason for birth control. I think it works. There are risks. I didn't, I'd be more concerned at her age of like GI issues and headaches and um, electrolyte imbalances and things like that. But as a 
father, I thought I was making the right decision with my child. Um, so for birth control and women that need birth control, I think it's okay if you go through the risk, they're not smoking and all that stuff. But there's, I've been switching a lot of my birth control pill patients over to the fertility tracking devices like Daisy and Yeah, I love Daisy. I've been getting a lot of them off of it because they don't even know about it, first of all. Mm -hmm. And when you talk to them about it, it's, there's absolutely no risk except for, you know, getting pregnant. But if you can use condoms for a good three months while you're letting the device gather the data, it's pretty darn accurate and you know when not to have sex. So, and, and I think it's good to know more about your body too. And that's part of it too, is so many you know, so many women, I, I don't think that they know how things work sometimes. And, and that's part of it too. The, the whole topic is just kind of taboo in schools. You know, it's like they talk about it a little bit, and they, but they separate the kids and it's still this really strange, like you can't talk about it, you know? Yeah. And, and I, and I just want to, I want to clarify my point because I'm not poo-pooing on medical doctors, right? Because I, I truly believe that any medical doctor the reason why they got into the profession for the most part is because they wanted to do, they wanted, they got into it with the best of intentions. They wanted to make a difference. They wanted to make um, uh, someone's life better in some way in whatever specialty and whatever specialization it is. In the same way that you as a father said, okay, I have to make a decision here for my daughter and I have to work in her best interests, right? So you work with the best information that you have available. I think my I think my bigger my bigger um, you know sort of seed to sow or my bigger bone to pick is really with the studies and the and the literature and what we were saying off camera. There's a difference between information and application. If there's a difference between saying, "Hey, we have this three month study and it looks like it's great," and then proposing that we keep these devices or these women on devices. It, well, with Esure, it would be a device forever, or with a medical intervention like the pill where there's, there's really no standard for how long a woman should be on it. Should she take breaks from it? Do we want to be measuring her B levels, her CoQ10? Do we want to be looking at her brain health, her, you know, um, her kynurinine pathway, like her tryptophan pathway? Like we, you know, there, there's, no, there's no consideration for the whole being. And I think that um, I had Kelly Brogan on the, on the podcast and she said something beautiful, which was, you know, the arrogance I think that happens is that we think that we can just look at the spider web and then just like take one little, you know, one little piece of the spider web out and manage it and think that it's not going to affect the whole thing. And I, and I think that that is really not a failing of the individual practitioner. I think it's a, I think it's a failing of how we look at women in general. We say, oh, well, she's got ovaries. Well, if we just like stick some coils in there, uh, that's not going to affect, affect her, you know, NF kappa B pathway that's not going to affect her cytokines, it's not going to affect her inflammatory pathways or chronic. It'll just affect her ability to get pregnant. When of course, you know, there's there's a fallacy there's there's a fallacy in in that in that thinking. Well, again, what we're looking at is this kind of if anybody ever gets a birth control prescription and you open the little piece of paper that's folded 150 times and look at all of the things you just read, no one would use it. I mean, it's like if you read what could possibly happen, and some of those things aren't possible, you know, they're not like, oh, it happened like to one person. Um, I mean, I have seen young girls have strokes on birth control pills in the 20 years that I've been practicing, maybe a couple, 
but you know, um, I, I think that high blood pressure, uh, things like that's very common. Um, and that's not something that we really talk about the, the, the brain fog, um, you know, um, the, just kind of the, the decreased libido it has. And the other thing is it, 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 it's systemic, right? It's, it goes everywhere in your body. It's not just going to your ovaries or tubes. So you're taking medicine on a daily basis for years. Um, I just, there's a YouTube video and I won't mention this person's name, but they recommend doing continuous birth control pills uh, so that instead of 12 packs a year, you're actually using 17 birth control pills packs a, a year so that you don't ever have to have a period. Well, so not, not even the mechanical bleed, like not even the chemically no. induced bleed. Yeah. Like you are, that is such a higher risk than just taking the pills. And it just so happens that the doctor that's doing these videos, um, one is a pediatrician, but two owns a company that ships birth control pills. So it's like, mm-hmm. you know, Sometimes I think we minimize the risks in our own brains. And I, I would say with birth control pills, they are thought of as like Motrin. I don't think that... Yeah, they're benign. They're just like, yeah, I'm just on a low dose. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and to defend that a, a little bit, the birth control pills, when they first came out, they are about one fifth of the strength right now that they were when they first came out. So they are weaker. So the risks probably aren't as high. But, you know, you still have to, and I'm, like I said, I'm not bashing anybody because, you know, when you're super busy and you're sitting there talking, you know, I can, I can see the process like, oh yeah, she's got irregular periods and she's 22 and she's in college or whatever. And she just wants, you know, easy fix. It's easy for me to write a birth control pill. I don't have, why would I check her thyroid? Why would I check her estrogen and progesterone? Mm. Uh, You know, stuff like that. It takes more time. And you know, um, it, some of these docs are seeing 40, 45 people a day. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could spend 40 minutes with somebody and go through everything, like I said, if we explained it the way you did, I doubt, I think birth control pills would probably drop 50%. Prescriptions would probably stop overnight, but we're not doing a great job with informed consent. That's the, the nature of it. And I don't think that doctors know all the stuff that you know that you talk to Jolene about. Most allopathic physicians don't know that stuff. They know DVTs, they know stroke, the big things, but they don't know all the little nuances. You know, mm-hmm. it's just not something we we learned. And the you know the pill companies when they used to come to the offices, they don't come anymore because there's no money to be made anymore. So they because everything goes generic. Um, so they don't tell you that stuff. You know. Well, that's why I do the podcast because I think there's a place for medication, but I also think there's a place for, I mean, my, my whole sort of shtick is to really empower women to be better, to live better lives in accordance with their values. Like if you, if you read the insert and you say, you know what, I need something right now because my periods are killing me or I don't want, I'm going off to college and I don't want to get pregnant. So I'm just going to take this little insurance pill as that, you know, as that mechanism of assurance. And I am also going to think about, you know, working with a functional medicine provider or a holistic, uh, you know, practitioner like yourself, where we can, we can, you know, maybe take a break from the medication and harness, because I, I am, I am, and, you know, call me old school, call me, I don't know what you would label me, new age, I don't know, but I think that there is such power in understanding your menstruation as a woman. I think that you are, if you are able to harness 
the ebbs and flows of your menstrual cycle, that is a, that is a superpower that is, um, that is just conveyed to our gender, our sex. Uh, I should say sex, not, not gender. Um, so I think understanding and learning about your menstrual cycle is so important. That's one of, I think, a rite of passage of being a woman. And if you have medically been controlling it for, and I've seen women decades, like they went on it when they were 16 and they come to me when they're, you know, 33 and they're just, they're just fresh off the pill and they're wondering why they're not, you know, they can't get pregnant or they're having, you know, issues with fertility or, or whatnot. Um, yeah, that's just that's just my, my thought around it. There's some there's so much power in our hips and in our in our pelvic cavity that we just we don't we don't tap into. Um, it, is, for a woman, it is a vital sign. If it's not regular or if it changes pretty dramatically, yeah. um, I can't tell you how many times I've picked up thyroid issues just by listening to the story of her period. Right. Um, and but you know, women are busy and and as far as pills, like I had uh, I had a patient who was a track and field in college. And just three months out of the year, she just didn't want to have a period because she didn't want to be, you know, running track in the, those little unitards or whatever those things are. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Period. Because she, you know, so she would just do it for those three months. And, you know, I think that that was a, you know, that's a good reason. And she had a legitimate reason and she was healthy. And so, but the women that I have a problem with are the ones that are like, and I can't tell you how many times this happens. I have a woman that comes in that's 53 and she's still on birth control because she was having irregular periods like four years ago. And then she just kept taking them and nobody has taken them off. And they you know what they told her? This just happened that, oh, well, if we take you off the birth control pills, you're going to go into menopause. Well, she's already in menopause. Right. <laughs> she's 53. Yes. So she's already there. Yeah, but she's she, already there. <laughs> like, oh, you keep taking them, you won't have the symptoms. And I'm like, you understand that the, the power of that birth control pill is probably seven times more than what a bioidentical estrogen menopausally would provide. So it's, yeah. it's hitting those receptors because birth control pills are neuroendocrine disruptors in and of themselves because they hit those receptors so hard that they block your normal estrogen. So mm -hmm. that's a fascinating thing too. You know, you check hormones on a patient that's on birth control pills and she has a zero estradiol and she has a zero progesterone and she's, it's a chemical, you know, it's just, it's, it's replaced it, you know? Yeah. And kind of back to what we were talking about before with, with endo, it also disrupts your vaginal microbiome, right? So some of the things we think about that are good for us, we think about, oh, well, vaginal birth is really great because then we confer, you know, the microbiome as the baby's going through the birth canal, you know, with the contractions, they're going to take in the bacterial and then that's going to start cultivating uh, the baby's own resilience or their own uh, immune system in their gut. But if, you if, you're on, if you've been on the pill for decades, you have a disrupted vaginal microbiome, a microbiome, you know, all through the body, you know, your lineage, like that's your bacterial lineage that now you're not able to pass on to your children. And, you know, bacterial cells, as much as, you know, we like to, you know, and maybe now is like, you know, even a more controversial time to be talking about this, but we obsessively wash our hands, you know, we lice all everything, but we are 10 to one. And some people have estimated 20 to one bacteria to human cells. Like we are, but a you know, uh, uh, um, a carrier for our bacterial cells. Yeah. And it's important to honor the, the bacteria that we have. So, yeah. Definitely. And I mean, I, that's, it's kind of freaky to think about all the sanitizers we're using right now and what we're actually doing. Yeah. Not just our microbiome, but the 
the world in general. And, um, but yeah, I, I think the other thing too is, is women just, I think what happens to a lot of women, um, cause you're, you're a bit of an anomaly in a good way. You are a very independent, outspoken woman who wouldn't necessarily let somebody tell you, Oh, everything's fine. You're just getting older, Stephanie. You're about 40 or whatever. You're, you're, but you're okay. Women just walk out of the appointments thinking, well, but he said I'm normal or she said I'm normal. Mm-hmm. And I can't tell you, that's one of the things I always say, normal isn't always normal. And you know you better than anybody else. So if you feel badly, like you're in bed all the time, you're gaining weight. If you, all these things don't, it's, it's, something's not normal right? So just because a lab is in a normal range doesn't mean that's normal for you. And so try, I really want women to empower themselves to either find a second opinion and women treat their gynecologist kind of like their hairstylist. They feel guilty if they change, you know, they feel like, oh, I'm I'm going to go behind her back. I'm, you know, and it's just, you know, it's your health, just change. It's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. It's so great talking to you, man. I've really enjoyed our, our conversation. I feel like I could talk to you for uh, a really long time around this stuff because we have, we have you know, there's a lot of overlap in terms of how uh, you and I care for patients and how we, how we look at things. So I wanted to thank you for your time and talking about some of these things that, you know, you don't really hear, you know, you don't really have, there's not really an abundance of information on low testosterone and uh, and on, you know, the endo uh, considerations that we were talking about and, and e-sure and birth control. So thank you for your openness, your honesty, your transparency, and for your humor. I so enjoy it. Okay, Bettys, That was a lot of vagina talk, wasn't it? And I mean, vagina talk is the best kind of talk in my opinion. And uh, I hope that you got a lot of value out of my conversation with Dr. Tassone and wanted to remind you this month actually is kind of sex month on the, on the podcast. We are talking to, uh, we had Kim Anami on, we have Dr. Sean Tassone and next week we are going to be talking about fertility. So wanted to also remind you about the offer that Kim Anami had in our last week's podcast. So she's opening up her salon. She's calling it The Well Fucked Woman. And it is going to be a deep dive into all things female sensuality, sexuality, and how to actually use your reproductive organs, your genitals, your vagina, your vulva, your clitoris, all the good parts to as a tool for self-actualization. So I have included her link to sign up for her salon in the show notes. And I am actually going to be participating in this salon as well. I'm really excited. So, you know, if you want, if you want a buddy, we can do it together. Um, I'm not sure how she's structuring the community, but I will definitely be doing it and I'd love to have you join me. So check out the show notes and we will have Kim Anami's sign up for her salon, which is starting in August. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only 
and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.